Hey, baby, this is Stevie Van Zandt, and you are listening to the LSQ Podcast. Hey, it's Jenny LSQ. Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. It did honestly feel like one of those Wayne's World I'm Not Worthy moments when I first got on the Zoom with the legendary Stephen Van Zandt for the interview you're about to hear in episode 73 of the LSQ podcast. Such an honor and pleasure to get to ask him about his creative ideas and process. Last fall, the musician, singer, songwriter, producer, activist, DJ and radio maven, actor, and more added author to his bona fides, when he published his fascinating memoir, Unrequited Infatuations. You should get it. There's a link in the show notes if you need an assist there. But anyway, in the book, Van Zant shares not just the incredible story of his life and careers, but also candid insight into what it takes to achieve mastery in music. Van Zant elaborates on some of that in episode 73, and we also get to hear about his early days with the E Street Band and how their commercial ascent felt from his perspective, his views on the evolution of rock as an art form, how he tried to, quote, make the Sopranos into a band, what new rock music excites him, and more. And where we begin the conversation, I had just asked about when Van Zant noticed that he gravitates toward the producer role as part of the process. Well, I guess it had it would have had to have been my first band, really, because, you know, up until then, uh, I was just a fan buying singles. And then when the British invasion hit and suddenly we were introduced to the idea of bands, which was a kind of a new idea at the time. You didn't see four or five guys uh, or girls singing and playing. It just wasn't done. You know, if you went to your high school dance, it was an instrumental band. So, uh, you know, I started off as a singer. And then started to learn to play guitar. And then once I got pretty good on guitar, good enough, I started my own band. And at that point, you know, as a leader of the band, you know, you start to uh, engage the five crafts of rock and roll, which I go into great detail about in the book. Uh, right after you learn your instrument, you know, the second craft is to begin to analyze exactly what you're doing, <laughs> you know, analyze the songs in the case of music. So at that point, you know, you're starting to um, get on the road to the bigger picture. You're going past your own musicianship, for whatever that's worth at the time, and you're starting to say, okay, how can I apply this to the bigger picture now? How can I apply this craft in a way that will lead somewhere or, you know, engage an audience someday, I guess? And so you begin to analyze the songs and that is the beginning of arrangement, as what we call arrangement, which is an element of production in the end. You know, uh, production ends up being a workable knowledge of all the crafts. You know, that's that's what makes production so much fun. You may not be an expert in all of the crafts that you're dealing with in any particular production, whether it's a record or whether it's a, a movie or a TV show or a Broadway show. But you have to be familiar enough with all of the crafts where you know how they fit together. That jigsaw puzzle thing, you know, is just so much fun. It's just like the most fun. I guess I'm intrigued because you do talk in your memoir quite a bit about this realization that some of what attracted you to making art was this sense of it would help gain kind of control over life or this feeling of like, okay, this is a way for me to execute my reality. Yeah. yeah so I'm, I'm just intrigued yeah. to hear more about in your personal experience when you realized you didn't just love music, you loved helping other people make it. Yeah. But you just hit on something that's extremely important, which is 
it's really all about what, what's the real bottom line? You know, what, what's the real big picture? And the real big picture is controlling your own destiny. You know, that's the thing that I think certainly all of us in the rock and roll world, I mean, that's what, that's what occurred to us, at least our, the 60s generation, uh, which was the second generation of rock and roll. We just were not enjoying the options offered by society. So we felt we needed to create a, a whole new world which had already been created by the first generation, the pioneers of the 50s, and brought to an extraordinary art form by the second generation in the 60s. Uh, we would be third generation rock and roll and already have inherited it as an art form and all, you know, and pretty much inherited it as a business, which really didn't happen till the 70s. So we were kind of the lucky ones. We're the lucky generation who got in after all the hard work had been done and all the sacrifices had been made. And it was offered to us as a real career option, uh, you know, which it hadn't been for, for the first 20 years, really. And the way of controlling your own destiny, because you just didn't want to follow the rules, man. You know, you had a, an anti-authoritarian part of your DNA, you know. Yeah. So it was either going to be, you know, entertainment or sports or crime. Yeah, like, <laughs> you know? what the like, what the fuck else am I going to do? <laughs> you know, those, those are your three choices in life, yeah. you know, entertainment, sports or crime. And, you know, I was too small for sports and uh, wasn't a whole lot of crime in the suburbs. So uh, I, went with the, <laughs> I went with the entertainment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With the way that you write about your early years as it's literally as a teenager, like falling in love with early rock and roll and also figuring out that you like to play guitar and kind of building on it and figuring out what's a band and what's, you know, how do we build our repertoire, all that stuff in there is this kind of self-deprecating quality of you thinking like, oh, I wasn't going to, it wasn't going to be a big thing for me. You know, it was just a, you didn't see yourself, for instance, maybe the way you saw that Bruce was going to take it to a whole other level. I'm curious, how did you at that point, what was your first goal in music when you were being really just as a kid, humble about it? What were you hoping you might achieve? Uh, the, the only achievement in mind was making a living doing it. You know, could you find a way to make a living doing something you enjoy? That alone was a kind of a new concept, by the way. Totally. You know, it, it wasn't a given that your life's work would be something you enjoyed. All right. This was kind of a new idea, uh, as ridiculous as that sounds. Yeah. After we've been on the planet for whatever, 5,000 years or <laughs> whatever it is, you know, <laughs> it finally occurred to somebody, hey, you know, we can enjoy our work. I mean, that alienation that, you know, Marx talked about, basically, uh, you know, was true. You know, he had a couple of things right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he had a couple of, he had a couple of problems in his theory, but but that he had right. And I talk about it in the liner notes of one of my albums. I think it might have been Born Against Savage. I talk about the, you know, the alienation, but not only, you know, extending not only between human beings and their work, but now it is starting to extend between human beings and the planet itself. You know, alienation from the planet itself. And this was 1987, I was talking about this, you know, uh, being very, very concerned about the environment back then, you know, so it's obviously only gotten a lot worse. But yeah, that idea that you could enjoy yourself while you worked, I mean, it was a, was a fairly new idea. And I have to say, pretty much exclusively an American idea. You know, you, you, it was interesting watching the difference between filming Sopranos here and then Lilyhammer in Norway. You know, we're used to working 10, 12 hours a day here. 
because we just live to work. I mean, that's that's what Americans, you know, kind of our work is our identity, very much our identity here, as opposed to over there. You know, you, they work an eight hour day and don't even call them after five o'clock, you know, don't, 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 you know, and don't call them on the weekends. And God forbid they're on vacation. I mean, they take that stuff seriously because they separate themselves from, you know, their, their work and their life. And we tend not to do that. You know, I mean, you, you, can, you can look at it either way, but I personally look at it really. I mean, we are a bit extreme about it. And, and you know, it was amazing to, to only work eight hours was just an amazing feeling. You mean I can have dinner? I can have meetings? I can go to a movie? You know, I can have life? You know, I mean, that's just not something that happened during Sopranos. But, you know, as extreme as we are, I personally do believe you are what you do. So I don't believe in separating one's work from one's life. I just don't. I think that's a it's a weird way to, I think, to look at one's life, separating it that way. I, I really, I don't really apologize for working too hard. I mean, that's just, that's what I do. That's who I am. And everybody else has to kind of fit into that. I'm sorry, you know, uh, that's how it is. And then I think that's how it is for everybody, whether they admit it or not. Uh, I think, you know, actually you are what you do. But I, for you, I, as when you sort of identified where that you were like, as, as a kid, you're like kind of what I'd really like to do if I could make money doing something with music, I would do that. I mean, what was the kind of reaction from your family? Like, were the parents that think like that's realistic or were they like maybe learn a trade? It was uh, horror, you know, <laughs> uh, that, that, that's the only word I can use to describe it. Uh, again, keeping in mind, it wasn't a legitimate business till the 70s. I mean, you know, at first it's just a teenage uh, kind of fun distraction. You know, they weren't too concerned when I'm in my teenage bands in high school. But once he graduated high school, which I barely did, you know, now you start to hit the rough patch of, you know, where we start to define the generation gap. You know, at that point, what do you mean you're not going to college? What do you mean you're going to try and make a living doing this silly thing? Uh, you know, what, what are you going to be a beetle? You know, are you going to be a Rolling Stone? I mean, and of course, if you had thought about it, they had a point there, especially because most of what was considered rock celebrity was English. You know, it wasn't a, you know. We had a few, you know, we had, we got the charts back with Bob Dylan and folk rock and the birds, but the real, you know, the real top of the hierarchy, you know, Bob Dylan aside was really an English thing. So your parents looked at you like, what's wrong with you? You know, you're not even English. What are you going to, you know, how are you going to do this? Uh, you know, and they weren't that wrong. And, and, and they were of course concerned about your future. And so that period after high school, when, when they said, Oh my God, he's, he's serious about this, uh, became really tough and, um, would be tough really until, uh, what, six or six years later when my very quiet friend who'd come over the house and my mother who would try to give a sandwich to, because he was so skinny, suddenly appeared on the cover of Time and Newsweek. <laughs> Talk about a surprise. <laughs> you know, they were like, what? <laughs> you know, and, you know, as much as Bruce hated it, I loved it because, you know, it, it got me off the hook with my parents. I tell you that. They're like, wow, maybe there is something to this rock and roll thing. <laughs> you know, if, it's, if his friend is on the cover of Time and Newsweek, you know, so... Those awkward years, you know, lasted, you know, like a good good five years there. When did it feel, though, to you, like, as, you know, nervous about it as you may have been after high school ended and you're like, I'm doing it, I'm playing in bands, I'm putting bands together, I'm doing all these different things, going and playing shows nearby. But like, when did you start to feel like, no, I think I can, I think this is going to work. I think I'm going to make this my life. I think it's going to work. 
it's funny how these things never really occur to you. You know what I mean? There's never that one revelatory moment. It kind of happened slowly, but we had stumbled into a residency locally somewhere in 1974, 75. Uh, you can imagine me trying to write a memoir and having no sense of time, you know, what, what <laughs> you know. So, I mean, we ended up having a, a very successful residency at, at a local club in Asbury Park three nights a week. And that was really a major, major breakthrough. Uh, I'm not sure it really occurred to us that it was, <laughs> but but. But looking back at that point, you're making a living playing rock and roll. Now, of course, your ambitions get bigger than that. So, you know, you don't really appreciate it. You know, you kind of yeah. end up taking it for until, granted. Until in retrospect, right. But yeah. that's, that's the era when you're starting to realize that playing an awesome show is a whole other energy exchange with the audience, right? Where it's like, oh, this is what ideally happens when people come to a show. That's right. That's the beginning of that. You know, well, it even started even before that, though. I mean, if, if we can look at it like, I guess we can look at it like three stages where you have the teenage rock years, then you have the bar band rock years, uh, which is, a, a you know, quite a challenging step. And then the professional, you know, now then you're in the business rock years, you know. So that was yet to come and would be very slow. I mean, well, Bruce would do two albums before I joined. But even after I joined, there was another two albums and then and then a third album before we succeeded. So we didn't really know we were making a living doing this. You know, what I mean, it didn't really occur to us until the fifth album, The River, in 1980, 81. All right. Fifteen years after beginning. Amazing. OK, it finally hit you like, wow, we made it. You know, we we actually made that that third jump. And then, of course, I left the band like, you know, you know, as you say in the book, up until that point, the previous generation of bands like no bands didn't make it that long. They didn't make it that many albums. They didn't make it that many years. They didn't ever. And this is something I'm interested to hear your opinion about more generally, because, yeah, how was anyone to know, even like when you left the E Street Band? How could anyone have known in the mid 80s that rock bands could still be the same band another 20 years, another 30 years into the future? Like, yeah, like, no was, way. Well, it was just it was, it was being invented as we as we evolved. I mean, it, we, we watched the entire evolution take place. I only missed the first decade of rock, you know, starting with the second decade. I witnessed the whole thing from a front row seat. Mick Jagger had the famous line, uh, you know. <laughs> I certainly won't be singing Satisfaction at, at 40. Then Pete Townsend had the ultimate line, which is, hope I die before I get old. So, yeah, we didn't really imagine. But if we sat down and thought about it a little bit, you know, the blues guys were, you know, were old and still doing it. And um, you know, some of the pioneers as well, you know. I mean, we just lost a few of the pioneers recently. I mean, Chuck Berry and Little Richard. I mean, Jerry Lee Lewis is still with us. It's, it's incredible when you think about it. So if we looked at it like that, once we adjusted from rock and roll being a teenage distraction and actually recognized that it turned into the art form of rock, which now takes its place with the art form of blues and the art form of, you know, rockabilly and art form of soul and, you know, all the other major genres of the world, you know, and, and isn't just a teenage pop sort of disposable type of genre, you know. If we thought about it in that sense, then it wouldn't have been that surprising that we're going to be around 50 years from now. 
But having said that, I'm certainly glad the Rolling Stones are still managing to go, even though, you know, they're down to, you know, two original members. That's, you know, that's okay. Uh, I I hope they go forever, you know. And Paul McCartney and and Ringo, you know, still out there working. So my biggest heroes are still out there working, you know, which is wonderfully uh, inspiring and and motivating for, for us third generation guys, you know. Yeah, no, there's, it seems like there are certain, like when you describe early on as you were teaching yourself about the early rules of rock and roll, that you also, as you write about in the memoir, have these phases of realization of like, oh, that was a limiting belief back then. And so I'm curious, like for you, if there are any examples you can think of what you assumed was a rule of rock and roll that you now feel like, you know what, fuck it. Well, it's a little tricky. It's a tricky kind of question because at first, you know, you're building your identity. So, and this is true in, in any uh, walk of life, you know. Uh, um, so you you are what you like, you know. Uh, you start to become who you are from what you like. And your taste kind of starts to separate you from everybody else, right? It starts to become your individual identity. So things that I chose to like or, or you know, that I just instinctively liked as a kid were for reasons of building an identity. And people I didn't necessarily relate to, such as the Beach Boys, because it was a collegiate sort of thing that I didn't relate to, or even the Four Seasons, who were more or less like my Italian uncles. Right. Things that aesthetically you're like, no, that's not quite for me. Yeah. Those are the things you start to appreciate later. You know, I mean, I, I love the Beach Boys now. I love the Four Seasons now. And they were really the only two things that even resembling groups when the British invasion hit. You know, and they were the only two to survive it, by the way, you know, other than soul music. But I didn't relate to them in that direct way that I do now. So, you know, at first you're relating to things that you feel is going to build your own identity. And then later you start to really um, appreciate things in a more objective way, because I don't have to wear a, a college sweater with a letter on it, you know, to like the Beach Boys, you know, yeah. you realize, you know what I mean? It's, it's interesting you write about like having this thing kind of against the keyboard for a minute because you kind of associated it with prog rock. Right. And then you saw where like then you had a zoom out moment kind of where you're like, no, actually, it doesn't. It's not just that it's the it can be part of this bigger other thing. It's more inv- this thing that doesn't exist yet. Well, the whole concept of theatricality of distance was something that I, I, I was very slow to uh, accept and understand. I just saw it as an autobiographical art form up until pretty late in life. <laughs> I mean, you know, I didn't get the whole glam thing. I didn't, you know, I didn't get it. You know, I mean, I enjoy it now. I mean, I enjoy show business now, but I didn't like show business when I was young. I wasn't doing it to be in show business. I was doing it to, for the lifestyle. I was doing it, you know, for other reasons. Other than, you know, look at me, mom on stage. I didn't care about that. It was all about this tribe, you know, this tribe of, you know, whether it was the Stones, you know, being missionaries for the blues or even the Beatles, you know, as successful as they were as as the greatest pop act ever. They still were very much um, turning you on to soul music, you know, turning you on to Motown songs and Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly. And, you know, and so they they were all sort of missionaries for American music. The entire British invasion in the beginning, turning us on to our own music because I I missed the 50s. So I didn't know it. I didn't know the difference between I never heard of Chuck Berry. How would I have heard of Chuck Berry? 
for Bo Diddley or Buddy Holly or Little Richard. I never, no I never, internet, no internet. <laughs> no internet. <laughs> and they weren't on the radio when I was growing up. Muddy Waters, who would have ever heard of Muddy Waters? So, you know, we owe a great, a great debt of gratitude, obviously, to, to the British invasion. But more than that, it was just things that you started to learn about later in life as you started to educate yourself, as we all must, no matter what field we're in, whatever craft you're in, you got to educate yourself one way or the other. And the experience that witnessing the Beatles and other British invasion bands and the phenomena of the band and this kind of gang group crew mentality thing was obviously key for you. I'm curious sort of how that ethos of a community, a collaboration, you know, how you've taken what you learned from rock and roll and applied it to all of these other things that you do. I like that idea of the family, you know. I think things are better that way. You get more work done, you get better work done that way. And in the end, it saves time, you know, saves having to explain everything because, you know, you're with people who just understand. I mean, the biggest, the biggest sort of, uh, it was a little bit of a, it was a little bit of a shock when I got into the acting world, you know, to see how that was a different mentality. They were a little bit more, uh, you know, dog eat dog type of uh, thing, which uh, I really wasn't used to. We have some sort of fun competitiveness in rock music, but not really. You know, we really kind of feel everybody, everybody, there's room for everybody, you know. The acting world, not so much. It's like, you know, you get the gig or he gets the gig. You have 12 lines and he has three lines, <laughs> you know. There's a little bit of that thing. And I sensed that almost immediately. And I thought, well, I'm going to try and do do whatever I can to, you know, turn the Sopranos into a rock band, you know. And David Chase, I think, had the same kind of mentality because he was in a band himself. And, you know, I think the fact that David picked Jimmy Gandolfini as the ended up being the star really was a big factor because he was more naturally a character actor. And we, we bonded on that off stage, you know, off the set immediately because that's my 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 natural inclination also to be a side man you know not not to be the front man but we both had to rise to the occasion to be the front men to be the stars and we both had risen to you know to that occasion but it was not our natural inclination so i think we bonded on that and the fact that it wasn't his inclination i think changed the vibe on the set you know he was not really that kind of leading man diva, you know. He was uh, completely an, an artist, you know, hundred percent. And and uh, and again, coming from that character actor kind of mentality, it made the set a little bit more equal. You know, the different actors started to, you know, we started to become a family. And I think the fact that David Chase picked everybody personally, you know, one by one, it always helps when uh, things are done by by one person's vision rather than a bunch of notes from a network, you know, right. saying, well, you have to you have to cast this one as, as that one. You have to cast him or her, you know, compromise, compromise, compromise. Um, David Chase was there was no compromise. And HBO was wonderful that way. Yeah. Probably the first studio, so to speak, to ever trust an artist to that extent. I mean, it was like, hey, deliver us a show. Amazing, uh, considering that it there was no framework for a show like that to succeed before right. it, that it just redefined everything for the potential for an an artistically made TV series. You know, yeah. truly an ensemble cast to be just a phenomenon. Yes, and, and and I think it it took a it took a struggling sort of network to do that. You know, in, in a funny way. You know, 
they didn't have a lot to lose, <laughs> you know. Uh, it was the biggest investment they'd ever made. So, I mean, they did have that to lose. But, you know, they had a football show and a couple of movies. You know, where, where are they going with this? <laughs> I mean, <you> know. <laughs> So take a shot, you know, take a shot. And and they did. And the uh, thing that David Chase knew and I think learned from the Marty Scorsese's of the world and now has been passed along to me, which is which is the priority becomes the priority in all of my scripts is the thing that David understood was it's all about character. And this is what very few people making TV right now understand. You know, if you really look at TV right now, you know, and I check out every single show. People don't quite understand that, that it's really about character is what makes a success. You don't see it. You know, it's all about crazy premises and environment and vibes and moods, you know, all these shows, you know. But, you know, if you think about the real the shows that really succeed and become, you know, these historic shows, it's all about the it's all about the characters. I mean, you might remember a couple of the plots of Sopranos, but. It doesn't really matter. You know, it's these characters you fall in love with. It's interesting, too, because you talk in the memoir about some people you encountered as having immediately as being a character, you know, in the in the rock and roll world, just like you're just like people you meet like Jimmy Iovine or something with the Capizios. It's like, oh, this guy's a character. And, (laughs) you know, the artists who have that special something that is undefinable, that part of it is that you see them. You know, and they each have like like the Stones or the Beatles, they each have a character. They they have distinctive character, you know, and it's so true that in anything, in any art, in order to really have it re- be another level, there have to be these people who are just distinctive and singular, but somehow still relatable. Yeah. And that was the 60s. OK. And, you know, that that was why I call it a renaissance period. You know, when the greatest art being made is also the most commercial. It's a renaissance. And the high standards were set by that very thing. Character was important. Identity was important. Uniqueness. Greatness was commercial. You didn't wake up in the morning and say, how can I write a song that's going to sound just like every other song on the radio? And that's not what you did. You said, how can I achieve greatness? Because if I, if I can write a great song, it will be a hit. You know? Can you imagine a time like that? No, <laughs> I, was gonna, I was going to ask if you think that's still possible or if you think there have been any sort of these Renaissance moments since since then. Our society wouldn't recognize greatness if it walked down the street like uh, like the character in Ghostbusters. OK, you know, like that. You know, the, the Marshmallow guy. Man. You know, yeah, the cookie man, whatever he was. <laughs> you know, we don't we don't have any room for greatness in our in our culture anymore. Yeah. There's like it's just it's just not a thing. It's a shame, you know, because there's no context for greatness anymore. So people wouldn't recognize it, which is what you know, my whole story. And that's why I started my radio show, that's why I started the record company, that's why I started my school curriculum, my music history curriculum, all to remind people what greatness sounds like. There is greatness. There has been greatness in the world. We must make it accessible for future generations, because if all they're doing is dealing with modern contemporary culture, they're never going to get there, especially since our entire society now is run by accountants and bean counters who have no sense of development. Okay, there's no such thing as greatness being born. Greatness is developed. But you still you remain excited about new you hear new stuff, you see new stuff that you get excited about as a fan yeah. and as an appreciator of good creative work all the time. And and even I'm curious specifically, I know via our Sirius XM connection that you also just launched a new Sirius XM channel 
that is based on what you've been doing on Underground Garage and derived from that expertise where it's 1,000 coolest songs in the world. Hmm. Do you have just, is it just instinctive or do you have kind of a mental checklist of what makes a song something you mentally set aside for later? Well, um, they kind of technically stay in rotation. You know, we don't, we don't ever, ever take anything out of rotation. You know, that, yeah. you know we, we have picked the coolest song in the world this week, every week for 20 years. That equals a thousand. And we've also introduced a thousand new bands, over a thousand new bands. So people are still doing it against all odds, in spite of the fact that there's no reward for it whatsoever. It's harder than ever to make a living doing it. There's no rock anywhere near the top 10. I think I, I, I just heard a song which really, well, there's been a couple of exceptions just this, this past couple of weeks. Coldplay um, did a song with, with BTS called My Universe, which is quite exciting. It's a terrific song, a terrific video. It's kind of bringing, you know, feels like rock. <laughs> and, uh, and a group called Monoskin from Italy, who uh, have an enormous success, uh, and, and they are hard rock, you know, on the harder side of rock. So and they cover the Four Seasons. They cover the Four Seasons. They uh, they cover Iggy Pop, you know. They, they, you know, and I just saw them play live here in New York, and and the entire audience was singing along in Italian. So, you know, it kind of gives you hope. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's those are really two enormous exceptions to, to the rule. And I'm and I'm hoping, believe me, that it catches on and 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 rock starts to come back. But the truth is, we're no longer part of the mainstream. We're no longer part of the industry. You know, we're still the biggest thing live, luckily, if we ever get back to being live. But, you know, the last time a rock song was in the top 10, you know, you know, decades. I mean, it's a long time. So the kids who are still doing it and there's a thousand bands still doing it, you know, you want to support them even more. And it's like, wow, they're doing it purely out of passion. There's no logical reason to be in a rock band. You know? But also for listeners, just I can't recommend it highly enough. The book Unrequited Infatuations, not just because it's the story of Stephen Van Zandt, but because you learn a lot about the history of popular music in general and of rock music and its evolutions and, and your expertise on all of it and the way you have of kind of breaking it down and explaining it is, you know, I think for people who don't know much about that early rock history, it's it's like the perfect context. Well, thank you. No, thank you. I really, I really worked hard, you know, and I, and I, I told my, my great editor, Ben Greenman, I said, listen, your main job is I want to keep a balance between three things. I, I want, I want the narrative, obviously, yeah, you have to have that, but I want the history because I've only missed the first decade and I have some observations about the history and the crafts I've been involved with. You know, because I've been involved with a lot of crafts, so like, you know, a dozen different crafts that, you know, I, I think uh, I think if I passed along some observations, it could be useful. Uh, and um, that balance between history, narrative and craft, I think, was important, an important way of, of distinguishing this thing from from just a, a music biography for music people. You know, there's plenty of that in there, like you said. But but, you know, the first half of the book is 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 sort of that. You know, a local kid from Jersey makes it to the top of rock and roll, and that's great. You know, and you know, and I don't mean I don't mean to sound ungrateful about that. That's a, that's a good story in and of itself. But the second half of the book, I think, gets more interesting. Uh, it's where the theme the themes start to widen, and and you start to realize, oh, wait a minute, 
This is not just about the music business. Uh, this is about a search for identity, a search for purpose, a, a search for spiritual enlightenment, things that, you know, are a bit more common uh, that, I, that I hope people will relate to. Uh, because I think everybody at some point gets disappointed in life. Either it's a failure or, or, or a, their, their life plan doesn't work out or just some, some event um, where they, you know, suddenly uh, are confronted with disappointment. It's not the disappointment so much, but what you do with it, you know? I mean, in my case, when I left the band, I, I, it hit me that my, I didn't just change jobs. I just ended my life. My life was over. There was, I was staring into the abyss. I had no, no plan past that, you know, and yet everything I've done in my life happened after that. Everything I've accomplished, you know, happened after I thought my life was over. Uh, and, and so I think that could be useful to people, you know, who think, you know, wow, I, mean, I really hit the wall here. I have no place to go. If you can move forward, find a way to move forward. Don't and don't let the the disappointment stop you and succumb to drugs or alcohol or suicide, all of which I considered. Uh, if you can find a way to move forward, uh, destiny has a way of, of surprising you. And and um, you know, turns out you know it ain't over till it's over. So you know, I hope that can be encouraging and, and useful. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so honored to get to talk to you, Stephen Van Zandt. Thank you so much for coming. My pleasure. That brings us to the end of episode 73. One final thanks to Stephen Van Zandt for taking the time for that conversation. I will always cherish that one. And thank you to Kenny Weinstein for hooking it up. And of course, thank you for listening to the LSQ podcast. Uh, You can reach me if you've got questions or feedback on Twitter at JennyLSQ. And I'm looking forward to episodes in the next several weeks with Terrace Martin and Kate LeBon and Johnny Marr. So please do subscribe if you're not already doing that. And I'll talk to you next time.